Hello again. This is Alan Lightman. Our three-part public TV series, Searching Our Quest for Meaning in the Age of Science, continues premiering on PBS stations nationwide and remains accessible on pbs.org through May 2023. After that, many stations will offer the series to members in their passport collection. My on-camera conversations for searching captured some fascinating material from a diverse cast of characters, Nobel laureates, MacArthur geniuses, leading researchers in biology, neuroscience, physics, and astronomy, plus philosophers, ethicists, a rabbi, the Dalai Lama, and a humanoid robot. These podcasts share more of that material than we could include in the broadcast series. And I'm happy to acknowledge that both the series and these podcasts are made possible by a grant from the John Templeton Foundation. This podcast takes us to CERN, the giant particle accelerator near Geneva on the border between France and Switzerland. Since the detectors were being upgraded when we visited and no beams of protons were whizzing around the 27-kilometer ring, we were able to travel deep underground and see into the guts of this massive machine. But just as important was meeting with many of the people who make CERN operate, theorists, experimenters, and engineers. You'll be hearing from four of them, including CERN's Director General, Fabiola Giannotti. Some key areas at CERN were incredibly noisy with no chance to turn anything off. But as Fabiola Giannotti says, that's what you get when your research involves huge and very powerful machines. Um, I find this um, uh, adventure uh, that is not only uh, a scientific adventure, but also a, a human adventure. I was lucky enough to take an elevator down into the CMS service pit with Andres Delanoy. CMS stands for Compact Muon Solenoid Detector. So this is the main elevator, and as you can see, it currently is on the uh, third level, so it's all the way down to what we call the surface of the experiment, and it's about 97 meters underground. So uh, one of the questions that we get a lot is, why is the detector so deep underground? One of the reasons you might imagine that the detector is so far underground is perhaps the shield from cosmic rays, which I think you know quite a bit about. But as a matter of fact, cosmic rays have no problem going through 100 meters of Earth. They go through just fine. And in fact, we use those cosmic rays for things such as alignment of the detector components. But the real reason that we need to have our detector so deep underground is because this is where the bedrock in this area is. And keep in mind that our detector is about twice as heavy as the Eiffel Tower. So we really need to sit on the bedrock. The, in fact, the soil in this area is very wet. There's, yeah, and the, there's actually running water under our feet. And this uh, had implications for the construction of the project. When they were digging the shafts to lower the detector, they had to freeze the soil, literally freeze this running water underground in order to build, build these shafts. And that also had impacts in terms of the cost of the experiment and uh, a lot of constraints uh, regarding that. So we're gonna go into the elevator. I have to just go ahead and close the doors over here. 
So one of the things that's also interesting, you can see from the schedule here, that we are about to get the first beams in 33 months. Uh, so the LHC has been in, for the last three years or so, we've been in a period of maintenance and upgrade. So uh, we're very much, uh, you know, at the, at the very uh, start of the new beams. Mm -hmm. So this will be the first beam around the machine since, uh, yeah, a couple of years ago. And um, we're getting as much as we can ready. There's going to be about two weeks of, of this, what we call beam test. And uh, we're going to see the first, let's say, preliminary collisions. These are not really meant to be used uh, to study the data, let's say. They're just used to you know, uh, get all of the machines up to speed, all of the detectors up to, up to speed. Well, this is an exciting time to Absolutely. Be starting after a couple of years. Yeah, so this is very exciting for yep. everyone in the collaboration. There's many things that uh, we have been working towards. Um, let's say when I mentioned upgrades and uh, also maintenance, this means that parts of the detector have been taken apart, it's gone up to the surface, and maybe electronics have been replaced as part of the muon, the muon system. So there is actually a new muon system that has been installed, what we call the GEMS. Uh, we have worked towards more planning towards the future. So for example, the pixel detector is the innermost part of our detector. And it really receives the most radiation. That means that it has a limited lifetime. So we're currently in the second generation pixel detector, and we are expected to install a third generation pixel detector for what we call the high luminosity LHC. So this won't happen for more than five years, but already we have replaced the beam pipe, which is when the protons come in from one direction and then the other, they travel inside of this beam pipe, which is kept at a vacuum and under very, very uh, strict and very uh, careful conditions. So that was replaced with one with a smaller diameter because when the pixel detector does get replaced, it will be so close to the beam pipe that it, we need a smaller diameter one to accommodate everything. So this, this whole facility is called CMS. And, yes. and that's my understanding is that stands for Compact Muon Solenoid. Exactly. What, what is a solenoid? So a solenoid is essentially a specific kind of magnet. And in the case of CMS, it is a superconducting magnet that generates a very powerful magnetic field. But the solenoid has to do with the shape, and it has to do with the kind of magnetic field that it generates. Now, uh, to elaborate a little bit more, the, the solenoid is one of the very crucial and principal parts of the detector. And the reason is when we have these collisions, if you have charged particles that are produced, then they will bend in the, under this magnetic field. And uh, when they have very high energies, these particles that are produced, they will travel more in a straight direction. What I'm trying to say is that the curvature of the charged particles depends on their momentum, right? So if you have a very energetic particle, it will tra travel almost straight but the magnetic field can literally help us determine the momentum of the particles. So, yeah, so you can measure the momentum by how much yeah. the, the curve bends, the trajectory bends in the magnetic field. Right, and to you know, tell you a bit more, the, the name compact, it, it's almost, uh, if, you, if you were to see the detector, it is massive. 
So it's not a small detector. What it means when we say compact, it is small with respect to its weight. It's, it's very dense, right? Uh, if you compare it to Atlas, it's almost half the size, but it is twice the weight. And it is uh, compared to the Eiffel Tower, for example, Atlas weighs about the same as the Eiffel Tower. CMS weighs twice as much. So we're talking about 14,000 tons. And muon is also part of the name for CMS. And this, uh, you know, the muon, as you probably know, is a, let's say a cousin or uh, is related to the electron, but it's a heavier particle. It's about 200 times heavier than the electron. And in CMS, we've built uh, a large part of the detector is dedicated to the measurement of these muons. As a matter of fact, essentially the entire detector fits inside of the solenoid. I mentioned it's a six meter inner diameter, so all of the major systems that measure particles are within that volume. Outside of that is basically all dedicated to measuring muons, and uh, muons are really hard to stop. They have this higher momentum, so in order to slow them down, we need a lot of mass, and it, we use steel to slow down the muons and then have active layers of detector to measure the, the trajectory of these muons. And uh, to give you a sense, uh, this steel also is part of the magnetic system. It's a return yoke, as we call it. It is responsible for 12,500 of the 14,000 tons in total that, uh, that the detector weighs. Let's keep going. So this is one uh, area where I think here you really get a sense of how far deep underground we are. If you, if you work really hard, you might be able to see the surface, but it's really difficult. So the, I think the only way you can do it is if you get extremely close to this fence and you look directly up, you can see all the way to the top. And this is currently, I think, 87 meters underground. Now, uh, you see that on the floor here, there is this, um, the steel, uh, let's say, floor. Underneath is where the actual detector is. It's actually directly below and then towards this direction. But uh, currently, there's large concrete blocks that separate the detector. And it's very fascinating how much detail has to go into every, every single detail needs to be taken into account. So, for example, just the airflow is very important. So all of the airflow has to be, there's a, a positive pressure right now. So the elevator shaft, for example, has positive pressure and that has to do with, uh, let's say, fireproofing the elevator. It's the safest place. Uh, this is where the evacuation area is, is in the elevator and we use the elevator. Um, but it also means that all of the air has to go into the experimental cavern and furthermore, there's airflow going into the LHC tunnel. And just the consideration here is that you, some radioactive products are produced when we have these collisions. So all of the airflow, we want to keep it inside of the experimental cavern. So we'll go into the elevator and we're gonna be heading downstairs about 88, 87 meters underground. So here you can see the uh, principal, the main elevator that we use to access the experiment and we're going to go down to the minus two level. I mentioned that we had this period of upgrade and maintenance, and the detector has undergone a lot of work, and this large collaboration has been in charge of upgrading different parts of the detector. Uh, we have 
working our way from the inner, innermost, innermost part of the detector, we have replaced the beam pipe, which is where the particles travel and they collide in. That uh, beam pipe has been replaced with a beam pipe of smaller diameter. Now, we also, working our, our way around that, we have many different systems that are enclosed in the superconducting solenoid. And in fact, most of our detector fits inside of that superconducting solenoid. So that magnet, which is a very, very powerful magnet, generating about 3.8 Tesla, so it's like 100,000 times more magnetic field, a higher magnetic field than the Earth's magnetic field. Back on the surface, I spoke more with Fabiola Giannotti. It's always struck me as a kind of poetic irony that, that the search for the smallest particles in nature, we need the biggest machines. Yes. Why is that? Well, because if you want to look at the uh, fundamental constituent of matters, you, you need a lot of energy. And uh, to produce a lot of energy, you need big, big machines. So in our case, this is done by accelerating um, beams of particles, for instance, beams of protons in the Large Hadron Collider, at the highest possible energies, where the limitation comes from the available technology and then to smash them and this smash, with this, through these smashes, through this collision, we are going to scrutinize matter at the level of the most elementary constituents. So the so-called elementary particles, which cannot be cut into smaller pieces. So if you want to study human cell, a tabletop microscope is enough. If you want to study the fundamental constituents of matter, you need a 27 kilometer ring with technology. I asked theorist Dorota Grabowska whether she thought there was a limit to how small a size CERN might see. So you're a theorist mm -hmm. and you've probably thought a lot about whether there's a limit to how far we can go in finding fundamental physics, new physics, new particles. Mm -hmm. I mean I know there's the Planck at the, the bottom, yeah. but do you think we're going to find things before we get to Planck? Uh -huh. Interesting, yeah, so I would, <laughs> I generally think of the Planck as the, the upper limit, not the bottom, though it, it, it doesn't really make a difference. It's, it's a good question, because we don't really know. I mean, we have, we have things that we don't understand. We have things that are in some sense missing from our understanding of particle physics. But whether we'll find it before the Planck scale is an open question, because we don't we don't really have a rule that the universe has to behave this way or that way. Um, you know, we have beautiful theories that have been proven incorrect. Uh, like parody. Well, yeah, so, so par parodies is a great example, right? So everyone used to think that there's no reason for the universe to treat left versus right any differently. And then someone did an experiment looking at the radi radioactive decay of cobalt-60 and it turns out not only is it violated, but it's maximally violated. Um, and so of course then we had the beautiful theory of electroweak interactions that came out of that. But now we're sort of in a little bit of a different regime where a lot of our experiments are sort of being consistent, at least within the, the standard model of particle physics. Right? We haven't seen you know, a massive deviation from prediction within the, the LHC. Is that a problem for you? The, I mean, some scientists like to see deviations, it gets them more excited. Yeah, it's a good. It is an interesting question because in some sense, things t 
turning out not the way you expected and having a puzzle to work out is always more exciting than just in some sense confirming what you already know. And we're kind of in this awkward situation where we don't really know what's around the corner. There could be new physics just around the corner or there might not be. And that's, that's sort of really hard as a scientist, you know, as we, there's the question of, you know, where do we put our energy? Um, where do we kind of look for these new things? Because we know that there's something out there, we just don't know where it is. So you might have to build a CERN that's three times larger yeah. to find the next level of unknown physics. Yeah, or, or more, or potentially look in different ways, right? So if we go away from thinking about the standard model and thinking about collider physics, but instead ask the question about dark matter, right? Dark matter is something that we know is out there. We see deviations in the galaxy rotation curves. We see the effects of dark matter in the cosmic microwave background. Uh, and then we can ask, okay, well, we see this, so there's something that we're missing. Where could we look for it? Where could we find it? What could it be? But it might not be a particle accelerator where we find it. Exactly, right? And so, so th this is the amazing thing, is we have very little information about dark matter that isn't from the gravity side. And that actually gives us very weak constraints on its mass. Mm -hmm. So you can ask, you know, how light could the lightest dark matter object be? And the answer is, well, it has to fit inside a galaxy. And that's something like 27 orders of magnitude lighter than the electron, maybe even more. I think it might be something like 33. And you can say, OK, well, that's the lower limit on its mass. What is its upper limit? Well, it could be primordial black holes. It could be these sort of macroscopic um, black holes. And that can be up to 1,000 times the solar mass that's 90 orders of magnitude that we have to cover. And you can't use the same sort of experiments to look for both. You can't use the same experiment that's looking for primordial black holes to look for this sort of ultralight dark yes. matter. Yeah. Um, and so we're kind of at this, this point in, in at least sort of an astroparticle and sort of dark matter exploration that we're really having to be creative and kind of trying a bunch of different things because we no longer have good hints of where to look. Fabiola Giannotti. I'm sure you know that, that some leading physicists have hypothesized that there exists a, a final theory or an ultimate Lagrangian. And once we have that, uh, no further approximations will be needed. We'll have the final thing. Do you think there is a final theory? Of course it is in our nature and uh also I think the way our brain uh, works to try to find something that is unifying and try to give um, an explanation, a unique explanation to the complexity that we, that we see. And the, and, the, and the dream of an ultimate unified theory, of course, is, uh, is very appealing and I myself very much appeal by it and, uh, and I think we should aim at that. But whether we will be able to, to, to get there, I don't know. Um, I think the path of knowledge is an infinite one. We will never stop you know, acquiring more knowledge. Andre David is an experimental particle physicist with over 15 years of experience in hardware and software for distributed data acquisition and trigger systems. And in fact, there are beautiful experiments that have happened in the last 10 years that have shown that we can look, we can peer down to that limit. Like 
seeing gravitational waves brings us closer uh, to that limit. Uh, having atomic clocks that can work at the scale of 10 to the minus 20 uh, seconds bring us closer to that limit. It was something I, I didn't know about, but I, it's, it's, it's fascinating how you do not need the accelerators to go there. The question is, what do you have, let's say, between 10 to the minus 32 and 10 to the minus 19? Is it just a big desert? Are electrons fundamental? Are quarks fundamental? Why is there only one Higgs particle up to now? I mean, it's it, why there is... I didn't know much about the Higgs boson before I joined CMS. And then I worked in the Higgs to die photon channel. And we, we found something. It's amazing. And as I learned more about this particle and its role, it is really, truly fascinating that in the standard model, you have one single field, one single concept, fulfilling two completely different roles because it takes care of this electroweak symmetry, very complicated thing. And at the same time, it is also responsible yes, for mass. the masses of quarks. Yes. Uh, and the, the best depiction I've seen of this was in a uh, restaurant menu that had one of these early bird specials. And it depicted a couple who were clearly very thrifty, but it was the same actor portraying mm -hmm husband and the wife, just with a wig. So it's the same thing here. Why should we have only one Higgs boson? No idea. But the Higgs particle was predicted a long time ago. Yes. And my understanding is there aren't any concrete predictions besides the super, the, the symmetry partners, the super partners. There, there aren't any specific predictions of particles between 10 to the minus 18 and 10 to the minus 33 at Planck. I, I am an experimentalist. I've dabbled in theory a bit because, you know, I, I, I like to understand things. Sure. As an experimentalist, I think my duty towards humanity is to explore nature and try to find out whatever it is that is in nature and get answers out of nature. You, you sound like a good experimentalist. That's what experimentalists always say. That you know, you theorists work with pencil and paper, but, but we experimentalists find out what's really there. Yes, but the, the thing is that I heard many people saying, oh, supersymmetry should have been discovered in 1990 or 2000 at the Tevatron or 2010 at the I'm sorry, it's when we build these things, we see what is in nature at those scales. Would it be great to have supersymmetry and supersymmetric particles coming out of all core? Yes, it would. It would give us a completely different view of what nature is like. But if they are not there, they are not there. So right. what we can do, and this is something that can continue to be done, is to more precisely measure what we already know to exist. Because it's, it might be that we are not going to find a huge crack in the ocean floor, but it might be a series of small fissures uh, that, you know, chinks in the armor that tell us where is the next thing going. And this is for instance, one of the things where I was very excited in theory, is instead of thinking of concrete models that give you new particles, just trying to understand how do you sort of add on to the standard model in a model-independent way, using, for instance, an effective field theory, and use that as a generic program, taking in every single piece of information that we have from all the measurements that we have, G minus two, top quarks, W bosons, Z bosons, and bring them all together. 
flavor anomalies. So those are now, you know, could it be that there is a virtual particle tickling uh, the quarks in their interactions and then appearing in the LHCB or Keck results? It could be found in an indirect way, but it might allow us to actually peel that one more layer of the onion and try to see what is beneath. Do you think theorists have any value? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I am a very, I'm a very fundamentalist, experimentalist, but I don't think that people believe about Theory is like, it's like a lighthouse. Okay, so being Portuguese, I'm very attached to the maritime tradition. Theory is definitely like a lighthouse. If you do not have a clear idea of where you're going, you might just end up, uh, you know, in some shoals and uh, a shipwreck. So the, then what happens is that you have different types of theorists. You have those who are inside the lighthouse. They don't get wet, they don't get weathered. And then you have those who are on top of the lighthouse looking out. They, they do phenomenology. So they, they like distill some of the theoretical concepts into things that you can use more immediately. And then you have experimentalists surfing the waves uh, yeah. of nature. CERN had sufficiently high energy to make the first detection of the Higgs boson a fundamental particle that was predicted long before its actual discovery. I wanted to know whether there was any practical benefit to finding such particles. Andre David. Speaking of things that we can use, have there, have there been any practical applications of the Higgs boson? The Higgs boson itself, no. Um, I think there is this famous story of when uh, the electron was discovered and somebody was asking, what will we do with it? And the answer, I think it's not a real answer, but it's a good answer. One day you shall be able to tax it. Uh, <laughs> on the other hand, the technology that allowed us to discover the Higgs boson, at least in the CMS experiment, which is based on these lead tungsten state crystals, is exactly the same technology that is used to perform positron emission tomography scans. Ah. So, Detecting particles, and this goes back to Mr. Röntgen, right, who did these x-rays, not on his hand, on his wife's hand, it's not, not very good rep for physicists, uh, experimentalists, uh, but there is a very tight connection between uh, medical imaging, where you use particles to look inside the body, and particle physics, and nowadays there's also another a branch of hadronic therapy where you actually use particle beams to peel off cancer cells. So it's, 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 you're saying that it's, it's the technology that's developed in order to make the scientific, the pure to scientific discoveries that has the practical application. And I was thinking of, of LIGO mm -hmm. where it's unlikely there will be any direct practical applications of gravitational waves, but the technology is fantastic. I have no idea how they manage to keep the yeah. mirrors stable to that precision. It's, yeah. it's amazing. So there will probably be some uses for that, some practical applications of that technology. So, Andres Delanoy. It provides a magnetic field that's responsible for curving the trajectory of particles that are produced. And from that curvature, we can actually determine the, the momentum or the velocity of these particles. And so that's very important to figuring out what happened during these collisions. How do you make the magnet superconducting? 
So we use a special material, and in the case of, of our superconducting magnet, we use niobium titanium. And this is a special kind of material that when you make it cold enough, and by cold enough, I mean, you know, minus uh, 266 degrees centigrade, or, you know, a couple of, uh, 2.7 yeah. Tesla or something like that, it has this quality where you can inject as much current through the material as you want, and it doesn't have any electrical resistance. Of course, I say you can inject as much current as you want, but that's not really quite true. There's a limit to how much magnetic field you can, uh, you can generate using this material. And in fact, one of the uh, leading, let's say, technologies that are develop developed here at CERN is material science, exactly with regards to the superconducting technology. That's a very interesting thing. I mean, a lot of people ask, like, is there any practical application to the research you do? And I would say maybe not directly, but indirectly, we have people working on these material science projects, and they'll, they'll uh, come up with a new material that can be cheaper, easier to manufacture, and generate higher magnetic fields. And that can directly be used in, uh, in medical imaging, for example. As you probably know, superconductors are routinely used in these kind of machines. That is certainly something that's very exciting and we're working towards. So here you can see the elevator shaft, and this is uh, basically 100 meters or let's say 90 meters and you can almost see all the way to the top this is uh as i mentioned earlier we are deep underground one of the peculiarities i did not mention is that there is interesting laws regarding land use in france and switzerland so it's a bit different but there's some kind of i think in france there's some kind of regulation where people own their land up to a certain depth so it's very fortunate that the LHC is very deep underground because it means that we didn't have to purchase the land in order to, uh, to build the LHC. So from just looking up uh, this shaft, this elevator shaft, you can really tell uh, how much is involved, even just the civil engineering. These are big, big projects and uh, there's a lot involved um, that you would not even consider. So the detector itself, is really, really large, um, but there's so many details about making these facilities and making them safe, for example. So one of the small details that is perhaps not appreciated and it's not something you would immediately think about is that you have to really take care or you have to consider the airflow, right? And you want to make sure that all of the particulate, all of the, any, any dust or anything like that that can become radioactive stays in the cavern. And you also need to take uh, into account all sorts of safety precautions. So all of this, uh, lots of detail that has to go into the planning and the execution of this sort of facility. But for all the amazing instruments deployed at CERN, I was even more impressed by the commitment and passion of the people I met. Fabiola Giannotti. Physics at the cutting edge has changed a lot over the last century, uh, where now it takes teams of very large numbers of, of scientists working on a project. It's not like the days of Rutherford, where just one person and a couple of assistants could discover the nucleus of an atom. These days, sometimes there are a hundred names on a published paper. A thousand. A thousand. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, do you think that, that being just one cog and a big wheel or being one person in a, a thousand authored paper, does that diminish the ambition of a, of a young person? 
I, I don't think so. I, I have been a young person in one of these big experiments and I've never uh, saw my role as diminished because I was working with uh, thousands of colleagues. Uh, the complexity of, the, of our endeavors and of our experiments and of the question that we are addressing really requires these people. It's not that these people are there just for decoration. They are necessary and there is no way we can carry out, out these uh, great projects and uh, we, there is no way we could have discovered the X-Boson without the contribution of all these people. Uh, which of course have been, who of course have been contributed to different phases, to the construction, to the operation of the experiments, to the accelerator itself, to the data analysis. Um, I find this um, uh, adventure uh, that is not only uh, a scientific adventure, but also a, a human adventure. Andre David. You are mentioning hardware to some yes. extent. Hardware. I, I like to think that wetware is also important. So it's it's the tech I, I mentioned technology and you use it like this and like that but the amount of people that go through this process of understanding how do you make such a thing work how do you take care of zillions of channels of data that sort of training is then what i think is the biggest benefit back into society is people who are not afraid of dealing with so much data andres delanoy so the CMS collaboration uh, has a total of something like 4,000 collaborators. Um, however, not all of them are actively working on the detector. Some of them work on the analysis of the data. Uh, a lot of people work on both. They look at the data, they also work on the detector itself. Now there's also, you can think about physicists, but there's also engineers, there's also uh, you know, computer scientists that work on these, uh, on the design of this, uh, of these systems. So uh, there's many people involved in the R&D, for example. So they're looking towards the next, the next, next best, generation. the next generation detector. So uh, you know, it's not just what you look at. You know, the the work is in many, many different places, and many, many different people are involved in uh, just many aspects of uh, of the collaboration itself. Andres told me a story that illustrated the fact that at its best and highest level, science transcends borders, bringing people from different nations together in the pursuit of pure knowledge. So there's many very unique, interesting yeah. aspects to the experiment. Maybe another example I can give you is that part of the calorimeter system, which again, kind of we use to determine the energy of the particles. Right. So uh, there's a very interesting uh, requirement for the, the material that was used in the hadronic calorimeter. So we needed a very particular kind of brass. In particular, we wanted to get brass that was made before the Second World War. Wow. And uh, the way that we got a lot of this brass is through a collaboration with the Russian Navy. The Russian Navy actually donated hundreds of tons of brass that came from old artillery shells that were melted down and they're now part of our detector which i found really interesting uh, a very interesting example of international collaboration and just uh using science to maybe repurpose uh, you know tools that well would have been used for uh, other purposes otherwise that's beautiful so why do you need brass that was made before world war ii what so, special properties does it have 
My limited understanding is there are two considerations. I'm not an expert in particular, but my understanding is that the brass needed to have a specific, it needed to be a specific alloy that supports a lot of weight, right? It needs to be a very strong brass. And the second consideration is that when you produce brass, same as with stainless steel, you have to use air. And uh, currently in the air, there is a small amount of contamination after the atomic age. And if you can manage to get your hands on, uh, you know, 1940s, 1930s brass or, uh, or uh, you know, stainless steel, it is very clean in a way, in the way that it doesn't have impurities from the air that can be slightly radioactive. So that can help with reducing noise, for example, make the, the sort of detector very clean in that sense. I think it's a wonderful irony that the brass that's used for the detectors came from artillery shells. Yeah. There's a lot of symbolism, if you will. Yes, yes. You're taking something that was used to make war and cause destruction and turning it into something that is used for the pursuit of, of pure knowledge. Yes, I completely agree. And I think it's an incredibly uplifting, uh, you know, I, I, you know, like a, a very interesting and uplifting sort of use of this material. Um, and this is not just the only example that I can think of, you know, I mentioned that there's a large international collaboration. So you often have people that are from countries that might be in conflict and they work together here at CERN and they collaborate on projects and they get along. It's, uh, you know, science comes first. So that's one of the other wonderful things, a wonderful aspects. Beautiful result of this kind of scientific project. The huge scale of the instruments at CERN made me feel as if I was in some kind of high-tech cathedral. So uh, this is about 87 to 88 meters uh, deep underground, and we still have another uh, floor to, that we would go down to in order to reach the floor of the experiment. And in fact, everything is sort of large scale in this sort of facility, our detector. The detector itself is very, very large. So you can imagine it as being about the size of a cathedral. It's a very large apparatus and it's made up of many, many very sensitive and very delicate components, all designed and, uh, and produced by hand uh, by different institutions around the world. Dorota Grabowska. I know that for, for hundreds of years, maybe even as many as a thousand years, that human beings have built cathedrals mm. Uh, to celebrate things larger than ourselves. Mm -hmm. Do you think that we could think of CERN as a cathedral? Yeah, definitely. I, I remember the first time I went down to see one of the large detectors, um, which was Elise, um, which looks at, um, they do a lot of heavy ion collisions. So they actually look at when lead lead, uh, the lead lead collisions. And you go down there and, you know, as someone who has been in many cathedrals in Europe and in churches in the States, it has a very similar feeling because it's this massive expanse and is filled with hours and hours and hours of human time and thought and contributions. And that, that's what a cathedral is. Do, do you get a spiritual feeling from that? <laughs> In some sense, yes. And, uh, <laughs> and I think I use spirituality not necessarily to include God, yeah. but the feeling of being connected to things larger than yourselves, yeah. the, 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 the sense of beauty. I think it's hard not to when you go down there. 
um, because you can see, you know, usually you're down there and you kind of see people working on it because uh, it's only really open to visitors when they can also work on the detectors themselves. And it's hard not to feel, you know, this sort of collective experience and also just drive towards something. You know, the, the detectors weren't built in a day. CERN was not built in a day. Um, it builds also on the history of previous colliders, of previous physicists, of previous thinkers. And you can kind of track how all of that comes together. Um, so yeah, so in the sense of spirituality, of feeling connected to more than just oneself, definitely. So I think of the pyramids of Egypt, mm -hmm. or the, the Brooklyn Bridge in, in the U.S. that took so long. Exactly, yeah. Build. There are people that, that sort of spent their entire careers before seeing the thing finished. Mm -hmm. And that must be true of CERN as well, that mm -hmm. there were people I know it was true, true of LIGO, which took 40 years to mm -hmm. build, and there were generations of graduate students who, who came and went before the thing was finished. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, and the exact same thing happens here, where, you know, you have graduate students and fellows coming in, and they do, you know, what feels like a small component of the work, but the whole cannot exist without that small component. And, you know, now we're thinking about, you know, the future steps in, um, in CERN, in sort of collider physics and we have the high luminosity run coming up and that's supposed to be about 20 years and then hopefully the FCC the future circular collider and that won't be ready for another 30 40 years so you have a massive collection of people working towards something that they will never see fulfilled within their lifetime if you look at the Cro-Magnon paintings mm -hmm. uh, and Fontagam or Lazy Zay, mm -hmm. France, the prehistoric caves, and you see paintings that go back 25,000 years ago, beautiful paintings. It's pretty clear that the, these ancient people were, were trying to understand the world around them. Mm -hmm. And then if you go to Archimedes with his law of floating bodies and mm -hmm. Galileo with his first telescope, do you, do you see some kind of, and then we have CERN here yeah. where, where, we're, where we're sitting right now. Yeah. Do you see, or how would you describe that, that continuity in the search for, for meaning and understanding the, the, the cosmos that we live in? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there definitely is a natural progression, right? I mean, what we're doing here is not really any different from what early, you know, early humans were doing. We just have better technology because we're able to build upon you know, what everyone else did before. But it's in some sense the, the same thing as we're just trying to find out how our universe works to try and find our place in it. Um, and you, know, you see children do the same thing. Again, they also don't have CERN to play with, but they do the exact same thing through playing and interaction, and, and through playing and interacting and having contact with things outside of themselves they figure out how they fit into the world and how they fit into the universe. Andre David again. Let me ask you a, a very grand question because I can see that you're a thinker. Oh dear. You're a thinker. <laughs> I hope I'm not insulting you by saying you're a thinker as well as an experimentalist. I know for, for many hundreds of years that human beings have been building cathedrals hmm. to sort of celebrate things that are larger than ourselves. Can we think of CERN as a cathedral? I will take some exception 
to the notion because cathedrals tend to be tied uh, to someone wanting to show off that they have more resources than someone else and they try to build something that is bigger than someone else's. That said, I agree with the notion that one of the exceptional things about CERN is bringing together people from incredibly different backgrounds. And when I say this, I do not just mean it as an international organization where you have the Israelo-Palestinian uh, party, when there were summer students uh, during the pandemic, it was hard to have any parties, but you have Indians and Pakistani working in the same project. You have uh, Taiwanese and Chinese working in the same project. You have people from the US, from East Asia, from the Middle East. People are come together to achieve something. And it's not necessarily to show someone else that it's, oh, we are better than you are, because it's bringing like, everybody together. And when I say all walks of life, I do not just mean this international aspect. I mean, we have people who do procurement, who need to do it across hundreds of countries. At some point, there were different laws on how you paint a wall in the CERN site, because there was the Swiss side and the French side. And that required an agreement, a trilateral agreement, so that you could use the same uh, stairs and the same harness instead of having to use different things. So, is CERN a cathedral? I'm not sure. It's, it's a work in progress. It's always changing. It's always adapting. And it's open to everyone. Not sure cathedrals are open to everyone. In our first TV program, I asked four researchers including Fabiola, whether they would push a button if it could give them an answer to the most fundamental questions in their field. By chance, the two women, including Fabiola, said no, and the two men said yes. But in reality, there's no male-female divide in responses to this question. Here's how Dorota Grabowska responded. Let me ask you this question. Yeah. Suppose that you could push a button mm -hmm. and the final theory would be presented to you. Mm -hmm. I mean, some omniscient being yeah. knew the final theory and by pushing a button, it could be presented to you. Would you push the button? Yes, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Because just because you know the underlying theory doesn't mean you know everything about it. So we can take the example of the strong interactions of, of QCD, of quantum chromodynamics. And there we have the underlying theory. We have you know, the Yang-Mills gauge interactions, we have the fermions, and we can write it down. And it's in some sense a very simple theory, but it's a strongly interacting theory. And through all of these strong interactions, we get these beautiful collective phenomena. We get you know, the, the generation of mass in a massless theory. We get the birth of protons and uh, neutrons and all of this nuclear physics that we still have a hard time explaining from a very simple underlying theory. So it's, it's sort of like emergent phenomena. Exactly, exactly. Sometimes I've wondered whether the brain, I mean our consciousness, is emergent phenomena because we know how individual neurons work. Mm -hmm. the, the, the qualitative behavior of consciousness where all the neurons are working together is, is really not understood very well. Yeah, I, I, I think that would probably be a, a fair hypothesis. Because, I mean, you're, you're right, we have an understanding, we have some understanding of the basic building blocks. We even have some understanding of the communication. 
but then how we get everything coming out of it. I mean, that's, as you say, that's collective phenomena, that's emergence. It also reminds me of, of a game of chess, uh, uh -huh. where you know how the individual pieces move, but there are, are an infinite number of chess games. Yeah. And even the grand masters haven't yeah. played all of the possible games. Yeah. So, so maybe the final theory would be like that. Yeah. I mean, and even, you know, we can go one step further from chess to go, because chess has a finite one and go has a finite one as well, but go has even more possibilities, right? And so if we think about how many neurons we have in our brains and all of the possible communications that happen, then, yeah, I mean, just because you know the underlying structure, underlying theory, you know, we know how water works, we know that, that the atoms interact, we know how H2O looks, but then we get waves and shores and storms and it's beautiful. As with all our conversations for the searching series, I wanted to know how today's science might have changed our views of where we humans fit in the cosmos. Dorota Grabowska. Do you think that that our place in the universe has gotten smaller and smaller. Copernicus said that the Earth is not the center of the solar system, and then Hubble and Henry Dale Levitt found that, that our solar system is just on the edge of an ordinary galaxy, and we're just one of billions of galaxies in the observable universe. Have we gotten, has modern science made us smaller and smaller? In some sense, yes, and in some sense, no because it makes us part of a greater thing. And some people might say, okay, well, if there, for example, is other life out there, then why are we special? What makes us special? Um, though if there is no other life out there, then of course we're very special and you can ask why. But the sense of, you know, that you, that the only way that you can have meaning or the only way you can be special is if you are the only one I think is, is not correct. And it comes back to this question you had about sort of the collaboration. You know, if you are a scientist, you know, one of a hundred working on Atlas or CMS or even in theory, you know, how can you, you know, do you still feel like your work is important and meaningful? Um, and if you think in an individual way, then it's hard to do that. But if you see it as part of the collective, then yes, it still has meaning. So. I, I think it's really amazing that we have this massive, massive, massive universe. And yet at the same time, you and I get to have this conversation. Fabiola Giannotti. Do, do you think that, that the discoveries at CERN and, and other major physics laboratories has, has changed the way that we look at ourselves? Of course, we know that Darwin changed the way that we look at ourselves. Has physics and particularly the physics done here, changed our conception of ourselves and how we fit into the universe? Yeah, I think so. Um, well, first of all, I must say the two big revolutions of the last century, quantum mechanics and uh, general relativity, really give us an, a, a clear idea that we are of our limits. And as human beings, you know, we are really, a, a, tiny part of this of this universe and there is a full world out there in the in the size in the big size of the universe and at the same time there is a full world in the microscopic microscopic uh, world of quantum mechanics uh, one can look at the history of science especially in the last few hundred years as 
developing both instruments and theoretical knowledge of a world that's far beyond our sense perception. We, we've, one of the things we've learned, uh, of course, relativity and quantum physics have been part of this, but all of the discoveries, discoveries of x-rays and infrared that we can't see with our eyes, we are, with our sense perceptions, our human sense perceptions, we're seeing only a tiny fraction of the cosmos. In, in some ways, that's made us even smaller than, than our two meters size or whatever we are. Yeah, at the same time, the technology augmented us, if you want. So the technology that allowed us to reach, uh, to reach uh, limits and to reach, uh, uh, to explore worlds that uh, without those instruments we will not have been able to do. So it's true, um, it's, um, we, uh, we have even a stronger um, awareness of our smallness, uh, but at the same time, uh, I think that uh, all the accomplishment, the great technologies we develop, they are a demonstration of, of the ingenuity, of creativity, curiosity of these little human beings that after all are so clever. No, I don't think that the universe is fully rational, but I think it's part of our brain and our, uh, the way we, we logically construct uh, our um, view of, 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 of nature and uh, of the universe that really would like to see something that is explained in a rational, logical and coherent way. But I also like a little bit of, uh, of um, yeah. so. Well, I love what you said, that, that you hope that there's a, a slight ir el irrational element in the universe. Much more fun. Than Much more fun. <laughs> Thanks to media representative Sarah Charlie and all the people we met at CERN. It was truly a privilege to visit Earth's largest scientific instrument. This podcast concludes our series of conversations edited down from the many hours of interviews we filmed for searching. But we hope you'll use the materials and links on our website to continue your exploration of the people, places, and ideas you present in our programs. Thanks also to all of you for listening. For searching our quest for meaning in the age of science, this is Alan Lightman signing off.